with the recent hearings. Uh, how's it going, everybody? My name is Austin, and I am with Faithful Dialogues as well as Apostles Attic. Attic, and you can find my stuff on apostlesattic.com. And I'm with my buddy Ryan. Hey, everybody. My name is Ryan, and you can find my stuff over on AIIW.org. But I'm happy to be here today for Faithful Dialogues, another great episode we have coming up for you. Uh, so we'll jump right on into that. All right. And so we are live on YouTube, Facebook, Twitch, Kick, and Twitter. So if you want to see us, that's where you're going to be able to see us. Otherwise, we're on other podcasts like Spotify and things like that. We do have a text number. So if you hear anything during our conversation that you want to chime in about, you can either comment on our videos that you can see, or you can text us at 833-262-6431. Again, that's 833-262-6431. Make sure yep. that you subscribe and comment on our YouTube channel. That way you can enter yourself into the Apostle Attic t-shirt giveaway. And you can choose whatever design. All right. And then anything you want to say before I go into the gospel? Yeah, we just uh, we really want to hear from you guys. Uh, a lot of this show is me and Austin talking, but we'd also like to hear from our audience and get good questions from you that we can answer and we can dialogue about. So that's uh, something we're hoping to start getting from the show once it starts picking up. So, uh, any, uh, yeah, we're uh, we're good there. Um, All right. So let's go ahead and talk about the gospel. And the gospel essentially is the good news. And the good news is that the Messiah came and he died for our sins. And that Messiah was Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And so essentially God stepped into his creation through the person of Jesus Christ and lived a perfect life and was born of the Virgin Mary. And he willingly allowed his life to be laid down as a sacrifice so that his good works could be attributed to us, and our sin could be laid on Jesus Christ. And so if you put your faith in that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, that he was the Christ, that he died for your sins on a Roman cross, and that he was raised to life by the Father three days later as a sign that his sacrifice was accepted, if you put your faith into these things, then you will have eternal life. And you can also read the testimonies in the Gospels, because that's essentially what they are. Amen. And uh, once you've become a Christian, once you've given your life over to Jesus Christ, that gives you certain rights, but it also gives you a ton of responsibilities. And so those rights mean that you get to go and you get to be in heaven with Jesus Christ and God forever. Uh, you get to be a king and, a, and you get to be a priest. So those are all rights that you have. And some of the responsibilities that you have is that as a priest, you need to go out into your community and you need to minister the gospel to our very needy world. And so we see that in a few different places, Revelation 1-6 being a place where it tells us that we are, a, we are kings and priests of God the Father. And so we need to live up to that. And that's something that's really challenged me and, and gotten me to uh, start sharing the gospel here online uh, through my own personal stuff and now with my good friend Austin and so I'm just very thankful to God that he's given me the opportunity to be able to be part of his plan, to be able to go and, and to reach those lost people that he has to be reached. Uh, we, we hope that you're one of God's sheep and that you hear his voice through us calling to you and that you accept that and you accept Jesus Christ into your heart 
as your Lord and your Savior. So uh, that's Amen. what we can. That's uh, I think that's what we both want to do and and call people to do. And if like I said, if you're already a Christian, there you can learn from us and uh, you know dialogue with us and give us questions that you have or comments that you have on things that we might get wrong. Uh, so yeah. Yeah, and we are called as Christians to make disciples of all nations. And so I think that's basically what we're trying to do here. So if you do see this and you end up coming to Christ, we want to read the Bible and go through it and kind of just let you know what it teaches and um, let you know that you should obey what's found in the Bible. It's very important to live for Jesus. And so that's uh, one of the things is, I just just doing this podcast has helped me understand things and just I'm learning things all the time. And if you end up watching this and you do come to faith or you're art, you already did come to faith. It's a good place to kind of learn different things of the Bible. And so, Amen. yeah, we're going to be going through the gospel of John today. But we also have a couple things coming up and we're going to go through that right now. Um, Ryan just recently had a trip to Israel, and he's going to tell us about it, show us some pictures, show us some videos, and uh, yeah. Yeah, so give me just a second here, uh, everybody. Uh, I'm going to pull up a scene that uh, has all of my, uh, it's not all, I have some uh, videos picked out for us to take a look at. Uh, and of course, now it's causing me problems. There we go. All right, we're going to pull that up. There we go. Okay, cool. Didn't totally dox myself. That's uh, <laughs> that's always a good day, right? Yeah. All right, so uh, I don't think that they can see either of us at the moment, but uh, I'm going to kind of do a little narrative. Uh, let me make sure you can... Oh, can, you, can you see my screen, Austin? Yes. Oh, yes. perfect. That was even easier than I thought it was going to be. All right, so we can see here, uh, this is the in-flight entertainment system map of uh, our my trip over to Israel. As you can see, uh, I went up over uh, like Greenland and through Northern Europe. Uh, so started off in San Francisco. And uh, in this picture, uh, I have been sitting in this seat for about 10 hours at this point flying Ooh. over Great Britain uh, on my way to Tel Aviv, uh, which is the uh, city where the airport is in Israel. All right, so uh, that was a long flight, 14 hours. Uh, but you can see here, uh, this is a picture of uh, my first view of Israel. That's uh, the Mediterranean Sea is the ocean you're looking at, and the uh, city is Tel Aviv. Uh, and so it's a beautiful modern city, and I'm just so very thankful I got to see it. it it's absolutely beautiful. Uh, and so we'll jump right on in. The The second day I was there, I, I landed in Tel Aviv, spent the night there, and then the second day I was there, we uh, got right on into our, into our tour. And so this is an uh, amphitheater at a place called Caesarea Maritime. And so Caesarea Maritime is a city that was built for Caesar. Uh, it's in Israel uh, today. And uh, so it's got a lot of Roman ruins here. And actually, one of the things, I, I don't think I have a picture of it specifically, but one of the things that I ended up seeing uh, uh, was something they had discovered literally two weeks before 
we came, and that was the um, that was a uh, prison where Paul would have been kept as he was waiting to go uh, to Rome and to be uh, heard by Nero himself. I believe it was Nero. Yeah. Um, wow. And so they they are constantly finding new things that prove the different stories of the Bible. Uh, so I apologize for the for me breathing and everything in, in these uh, videos. I haven't done anything to them. Um, I plan on compiling a bunch of different videos for my different channels uh, in the coming weeks. So if you want to take uh, keep your eyes out for that, that'll be over at AIW.org. And I'm sure I'll have more to share here on Faithful Dialogues. So uh, uh, here is kind of a view uh, of the uh, gladiatorial pit. And so you can see seats over here where people would have been sitting at the time. And then uh, below in that dirt right there, there would have been gladiators going at it to the death uh, as waves are crashing over the uh, the little seawall right here. So I can't even imagine what that would have been like thousands of years ago when this was built. But uh, it would have just been an incredible scene, I'm sure. Um, and so uh, kind of behind me, or actually, uh, can you see it here? No, I don't think so. Um, but yeah, so that's just the beautiful Mediterranean Sea. Uh, it was really hot in uh, in Israel. So Israel has very a very similar climate to uh, here in sunny Southern California. Uh, so California, Southern California has a Mediterranean climate, and this is the actual Mediterranean. So. Uh, you know, lots of what do you yeah. know what temperature it actually was uh it was in the 90s or close to 100 it, it's hard to tell because everything's in celsius over there so uh. I, it, I i wasn't you know keeping track in uh fahrenheit or anything like that um, <laughs> no so that was caesarea maritime that was a really cool experience just kind of getting to be in a place where paul was imprisoned where you know, obviously we like to romanticize gladiatorial fights, um, but what would have also taken place in that pit there is they probably would have had Christians getting murdered by wild animals, Christians having to fight as gladiators or fight gladiators. And so, you know, there were probably some really horrible things that happened to Christians at that location. But uh, yeah, so it's, it's, you know, it's kind of interesting as a, as a boy growing up and watching, you know, gladiators fight and thinking about that from that kind of perspective it was cool but then also thinking about the suffering and the 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 trials and the tribulations that our brothers and sisters in christ went through was was really sobering too it was a very very interesting place to be uh so i can't remember the name of this location i believe no, I, I'm not gonna. I I would have. I, I could go dig through it and figure out the name, but uh, basically, this is just a really cool uh, vantage point. Valley. Oh, it's a Jezreel Valley. <laughs> what is the Jezreel Valley? Um, I can't remember exactly. I'd have, again, I'd have to go look it up. But basically, this is just a really cool overview of all of the coolest places in Israel. Uh, so it's just a really cool, like, lookout point. Um, so can I read? 
Yeah, so you can see. Uh, can you see my my? If you can see my cursor, uh, yeah. off that direction is Tel Aviv. Um, and then uh, over off to the left over here, we'll pan back over. I think. Uh, that is Jerusalem. So. So, uh, that's Joe right there. Uh, he's my pastor. He took us on this trip. He was a great tour guide. He lived in uh, Jerusalem for about a year and a half, uh, teaching at the Bible College over there. And uh, right behind his head, the white at the top of this mountain is the city of Jerusalem. And wow. so you can see, uh, you know, just how beautiful the area is. Um, you know, you, you can see the, uh, the farming and, and the life that the Jews have brought back to the land of Canaan. Uh, you can see this little sign right here in gold. It says Nazareth is off in that direction. Uh, so we're looking at the place where Jesus grew up. Um, that little so town right there? Uh, no, no, just off in that direction. Uh, oh. kind of off. So it'd be kind of over past those hills, I think. Um, okay. But yeah, so this was just a really cool uh, overview of kind of everything we were going to go see. And one of the first things that we saw in Israel, it was a really good way to kind of start it off. Um, so I think uh, so one of these directions is actually where uh, Armageddon is, or Har Megiddo, uh, which, uh, yeah. So this is another lookout area that we were at. Oh, this is the same one. This is the same one, just uh, still image. Um, and oh, yeah, yeah. So off in the distance here, uh, in the middle of the picture, that is Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem is a city that's built at the top of a hill or a mountain. And so uh, it's kind of the very top of that uh, that area over there. Nice. So. I imagine that has some strategic military. Uh advantages being on top of a hill like that you can see anybody that would approach your mm -hmm. uh, your compound exactly and so these are just more views uh from here looking around israel and uh yeah so that that's kind of a preview i'll have some more um oh oops sorry uh i will have some more um of an update for you in the coming weeks, but I just wanted to kind of throw that together real quick so you guys could see a little bit of what I got to see. Hopefully someday any of you who are Christians get to go out to Jerusalem and experience that. I, I highly recommend it. It was, a, it was an incredible experience getting to be in the places where Jesus Christ was. I think one of the, the most incredible experiences that I had in Israel besides getting to uh, worship with actual other believers, which which is a rarity in Israel, uh, in Bethlehem. So that was that was a special treat. But other than that, I think one of the the coolest experiences I had was there is a uh, Catholic church that was built over Caiaphas's house, and so uh, that's one of the places that Jesus Christ was tried right before he was executed. And so wow. I got to go and stand in a jail cell where Jesus Christ would have been kept. And so it's basically wow. just this pit that's directly below the uh, like sanctuary area of the church. And so up in the sanctuary, there's a, a 
uh, portal that lets you look down all the way into this pit, like a hundred or something feet below you. And it's it's just crazy to think that Jesus Christ was actually there. And so that was that that was just a, a really cool experience getting to like see the reality of Israel and the reality of these places that Jesus Christ actually was. It kind of helps you to understand that it was a real event that, that these people that are talked about in the Bible, especially Jesus Christ, are real people and that um you know, the things that they did have, have a huge impact on the world and, and specifically on me and and you know my salvation. So did you actually go to Jerusalem? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, just a little bit about the trip, uh, kind of an overview. We got there first night in Tel Aviv. The first half of the trip we spent up uh, staying right on the shores of the Galilee. So from my hotel, I literally, like, the first thing I did when we got to the hotel there was got in my swimsuit and went and swam in the uh, Sea of Galilee. Wow. Uh, so that was a really cool experience. And then... The first half of the trip, we were up in Galilee and Nazareth. Uh, so Nazareth, Nazareth is where Jesus grew up uh, after. So basically, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, flees to uh, Egypt for a few years, and then the family ends up settling in Nazareth, which is where he grows up. And uh, Jesus then starts his ministry around the Sea of Galilee, which is nearby. And so the first half of the trip, we we go all around the Sea of the Sea of Galilee, a bunch of different places that Jesus uh, actually was. So we believe we know where the field is that Jesus fed the five thousand. Wow! Uh, we went to some places like that. That was really cool. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the problem with a lot of places in Israel that you would want to go and kind of experience. Uh, the Catholic Church has slapped a uh, shrine or some nonsense, you know, some nonsense building on top of it. So instead of seeing this big field where you can imagine, you know, 15,000 people sitting, because uh, when, when we say Jesus fed the 5,000, that was only counting men. And so oh, I didn't even know that there could be as many as like 10 or 15,000 people, including women and children. Um, wow. And so instead of getting to see this big open field where I can imagine that happening, they slapped a bunch of buildings down on some rock that supposedly is where Jesus, you know, did something or other. Um, so that that's a little bit disappointing, but still incredible to say that I was actually at the real spot where where this took place. Um, one of the coolest things that I got to experience was in a it was in Nazareth itself. Uh, so that's where Jesus Christ grew up. And what they what some uh, Bible believing Christians did is they actually bought up. A bunch of land there an old uh like i think it was a vineyard either a vineyard or a like olive grove olive tree grove and um what they did is they do reenactments or they have like actors playing different roles of people that would have existed back in the first century so <laughs> there's a guy that was a shepherd and kind of did a little spiel about being a shepherd in nazareth and there actually were some sheep that he was feeding uh, you know, there was a guy that was in a watchtower and kind of told us what they did, you know, you know, how they had to look out for different things that would happen. And, you know, it was just a really cool experience getting to see life, uh, kind of how it would have been for Jesus. Um, and then what was really cool was, uh, uh, that, we, so there's that experience in Nazareth. And then in Jerusalem, there's a place called Hosh. Oh man, I can't remember the name. It's in it's in Hebrew, so it's it, 
Hashma, Hashma, I, I can't remember. Um, but basically, it's also owned by Bible-believing Christians. Uh, but what, what we did there is they have a lot of similar things, like a watchtower and different things that we got to see. But the guy gave us more of a biblical uh, tour. And so he was using scripture and, and kind of explaining, you know, this is the... Uh, you know, this is what it means to be to have like the oil pressed, and you'd give scripture regarding that. So that was that was cool to have both experiences. One was more like technical, and the other was more like biblical and, and scripture based. So I was I was just really uh, and so yeah. The second half of the trip, we we end up spending. Uh, we stayed at the Gloria Hotel in the old city of Jerusalem, and so. We were a two-minute walk from the uh, to the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, which is a another Catholic church that they built over the top of the hill where uh, Jesus Christ and the thieves were crucified. And then there's a stone that is believed to be where Jesus Christ was laid after uh, he had died. And then that's um, also believed in this same, basically all in the same church. So it's a big church, but not that big. Uh, they also believe is the tomb where uh, Christ was buried. So that's called the Holy Sepulcher. Uh, so that was a that was an interesting place to be. Uh, I for for uh, I'll go into this in in more detail if, uh, when I actually like present the pictures of it. But basically, it was a it was a lot of fun. On one Sunday morning, I was trying to get into the Church of the Holy Sepulcher or into the actual. Uh, place where Jesus was buried, and um, I stumbled upon a uh, Roman Catholic Latin Rite Mass <laughs> that was taking pl- that basically just started happening to me. So I was trying to get into the uh, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, into the tomb, and that was blocked, and so I went and sat on these pews that were there, and this Mass just started happening around me, and that was, that's a that's a fun story for another time. <laughs> Okay. Well, do you know so, what a, a Latin rite is? I have no idea what that even means. It just means that they do the mass in Latin. So up until 19, I believe it was 1952, uh, there is a, uh, a con- not a convention, what is it called? But basically there is a, the Catholic Church comes together in a, a thing called Vatican II. And so... Um, basically they all came together and decided that after, you know, supposedly 1,952 years of doing mass in Latin, that all of a sudden, uh, now it's okay to start having mass in English. And so today, especially in North America, most masses will be in English or be in a language that everyone can understand. But before that, literally like uh the generation before our parents every catholic mass would have been in latin mm. um Interesting. yeah so they that that that's the biggest issue with the catholic church is they try to keep their their congregation from being able to understand what's going on and to be able to read the bible and and all that kind of stuff up until very recently the the church was very hostile to believers actually learning about the faith in any way other than what they directly and specifically prescribed. Uh, and so when I, you know, when I was at this, this Latin rite mass, no one speaks Latin. 
So all the people that were there, we couldn't understand what was being said by anyone. Uh, some people had little, like, guides that would kind of explain in their language what was going on. But, I mean, it's still pretty ridiculous that, you know, literally no one understands the the mass that's taking place at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre on Sunday morning, right? Like, this is where Christ was actually buried, and you're teaching about it in such a way that literally no one understands what you're saying. It's just crazy to me. Yeah. Um, the, it's, it's weird because in, like, just reading Scripture in general, um, I feel like there's a little bit of wordplay that we miss out on because we don't know Greek and we don't know Hebrew, but it's still incredibly important that it was translated faithfully into the English language so that people can understand. And um, Amen. You, you can always do your, your homework and due diligence and learn a little bit of Greek or like use a concordance to kind of see what, what these words mean. But um, especially if it's like in a language that people don't really know, it's, it's not going to hit home and they don't really know what's being said. And it's, yeah, I, I find that a little bit interesting in that way because there's no way to object or agree. You're just kind of having words said at you. You know yep. what I mean? Yep. So, so you know, it, it, the, the biggest takeaway from Israel is that it's, it, it is just a land that is filled to the brim with idolatry. And every single really? flavor that you can possibly imagine of idolatry, it, it, you'll find in Israel. So, you know, that you've got the, the Catholics and the, uh, you know, the, the Eastern Orthodox and, and all of the, like, not Protestant Christian faith, you know, Christian denominations. They've got their all their idols all over the place, different shrines and things. Uh, you'll Is it like see, to like Mary and saints or stuff like that, or oh yeah, oh yeah, but that too, like times a thousand, right? Like, oh, uh -huh. Mary specifically is a big one for the Catholics, but I'm sure the Eastern Orthodox have their own whatever that they that they kind of uh uh are are enshrining you know those sorts of things every single place that Jesus might have done something maybe one time has a catholic church put over it and you know is not at all how it would have been you know 2000 years ago cuz 2000 years ago it would have been out in an open field and today it's inside of a Catholic building with a bunch of pews built around it and a giant golden altar. So there's all all of that kind of uh, idolatry. But then on top of that, you see the Jewish idolatry and the Muslim idolatry all mixed in together. And so, you know, you can see where the the Jews are idolizing the Wailing Wall, which wasn't even part of the actual temple itself and was constructed by King Herod. But, you know, they go, they go over there, they, they put their prayers in it and think that God hears them because they're putting their written down prayer in this crack in a wall. It's, you know, that, that's its own version of idolatry um, the, on the Temple Mount itself. So instead of being the temple that, that God wanted to be there, there's this horrible mosque, right, that Christians and, and Jews aren't even allowed to go in. And so... Uh, you know, you can go outside of it, and there's there's different uh, things that you have to do and cover up to even be outside of the the Temple Mount. 
but you know like i said as a pagan i can't even not pagan as a sorry i'm not a pagan but to them as as a non-muslim i can't even go into that you know that space so it's it you know it's just it, the entire land is filled with idols i highly recommend people go just to see it uh they also by the way america is the least racist place on the planet um, if you go and you step outside of the United States, every single place you go is going to be a million times more racist than here. Yet we why, have all why, these. Why do you say that? Uh, well, I mean, for one thing, um, so in Israel, it's it's not one country. Israel isn't just one country. There is Israel, and then there's the Palestinian Authority. And so, what would traditionally have all been the, you know, like back in Jesus' day, this all would have been Israel. But uh, today it's split between, um, like, uh, so Jerusalem is Israeli territory, and then literally a 20-minute drive down the mountain is Bethlehem. That's Palestinian Authority territory. And so in Israel, they have normal running water. Everything's great. In Palestinian Authority territory, they only get water once a week when the Israelis decide to give it to them. They have to have these big water jugs on the top of their buildings so that when they do get water, they fill up everything that they have as much as they can because they don't know if they're going to get it next week or if it's going to be two weeks before the Israelis decide to give them water. And so, like, it's just that is pretty racist. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Like, the Jews should be trying to take care of the Palestinians, but they hate each other because they both try to murder each other. Right. And so there's there's yeah. a bunch of racism for, from there. As someone who's uh, an Arab born in Bethlehem, you can't even go to Jerusalem without jumping through a bunch of hoops, and it's entirely possible that the government just tells you no, you can't go. It's because you have to get a like whole special visa. So even American citizens uh, who are Arab who live in Bethlehem, even they can't go directly into Jerusalem. It's it's crazy. Wow. So like. There's real racism in other places in the world, and here in the United States, we're just complaining about complete nonsense. Like, so Joe would tell tell the story of, so he he had some uh, when he was living in in Jerusalem for a year and a half, he was in charge of Bible students, Bible college students, and so they'd come for I think about three months at a time. Well, these uh, these guys come and they have some issues getting into the country. They only get given like a week or two week visa, which won't be nearly long enough for them to stay for the full 90 days that they need to be there. And so what Joe does is he goes down to the, the place where you're supposed to go to get this taken care of. They're the first ones there in line an hour before the place opens. The first question that they get asked as the first people in line is, what religion are you? And they say Christian. And so instead of being helped, they then have to wait until the, they're the very last people at the end of the day to get seen. And it's because they're Christians and not Jews. And if they, were, if they had said uh, that they were Arabs or that they were Muslim, then they would have had to go to an entirely different office that is way less staffed than the one that he was even at. And so, like, there's actual real racism and real, like, persecution and prejudice that happens literally everywhere else than on a governmental level okay because obviously there's racism in the united states at a personal level and, and people are evil and wicked 
but at least our government is just about as fair as it can possibly be. Yeah, I mean, we, uh, yeah, I, I agree. Awesome. Yeah. But just, <laughs> it, it, it blows, that blows me away that, um, it's just weird, you know, Jesus said to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And that's kind of like, I think the heart of the father there when it comes to like your attitude towards people is yeah. just, you know, just show everybody's your neighbor and you should love your neighbor as yourself, you know? Yep. Well, and, and I think that as Americans, especially, you know, myself, I'm a Republican, you know, you grow up and you have this idea that, you know, Israel and the United States were best buds, you know, the United States has got Israel's back. So, of course, the Jews love us. No, that's not, that's not the case. Um, you know, they, they, they want Americans to come and to spend their money and to give them weapons as, you know, from the government and all that kind of stuff. But the last thing that they want is for a, a Christian to be there and to be spreading the gospel. So like, it's illegal for me, it would have been illegal for me to go and to witness to a, a Jewish child. So anybody that's under the age of 18, uh, that's also Jewish. If I were to go and um, witness to them, I could be arrested and kicked out of the country and probably not let back in ever again. So wow. like, you know, they they are very hostile to, you know, American values. They love them. I'm sure they love Americans to an extent, but they're hostile to our values and to our freedoms. You don't have freedom of speech. You don't have freedom of movement. You don't, you know, that those things are foreign concepts in Israel. Wow. Um, did you, you were, you were touching a little bit about the, the place where Jesus was crucified. Did you, mm -hmm. were you able to go there? Were you able to see anything? Yeah, so um, I'll have videos and pictures of this for next time, so I'll get into some more detail then. Uh, but basically, we be the we don't know where any of these places actually were. The way that we have traditionally understood uh, these places to be the real places uh, was because um, it was Constantine's mother. So in about 300 AD, around there, Constantine allows Christianity to be legal. And uh, he, he kind of somewhat converts. And so as part of this process, his mother ends up going to Jerusalem. And so she's just wandering around asking where Christians go and kind of worship to go and find the, the places that are believed to be where these things happened. And so she just goes around and declares, this is where Jesus died. This is where he was buried. This is, you know, and so we don't actually a hundred percent know where these locations are, but we believe that this is the, the, the right location, okay. even though, even though it's impossible for us to know for sure. And so the, the place where uh, the, it, it is three, it, it's a, it's a big ish building. It's not that big, but it, it has, uh, it's called the church of the Holy Sepulcher. And there's three uh, sites that would be important to see as a Christian inside of this church. And so inside the building is the hill where the crosses were put into the ground. They don't have the original crosses, but they believe that there is the rock that they stuck the crosses in. Uh, that's kind of, so you walk in the front door, that's over to the right. In the front door, the middle is, a, is this rock, and it's a slab of rock that we believe Jesus Christ was laid on after he had perished, but before he had been moved into the tomb. So that's kind of in the middle. And then off to the left 
all of this is would be within view if you weren't inside of a building. Off to the left is the tomb that we believe Jesus Christ was buried in, uh, and so that's the the that is the Holy Sepulchre where the 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 building gets its name. Okay. So my issue with all of this is it's just too small. Like you you could you could throw a baseball from where the cross is to where the tomb was that Jesus was buried in. <laughs> okay, like wow. we're not talking we're not talking about a really far distance or anything like that. So it that that just seems too convenient to me. I, I don't think that cuz like you know the the tomb that he was in is Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Why would that tomb be right next to the exact place that they were crucifying people? You know what yeah. I mean? It, like that makes sense. What's the what's the likelihood that the exact place they're crucifying people is also like a hundred feet away from where this tomb is that this guy owns? So that that to me doesn't quite line up. Uh, the other thing is this is all happening inside of the walls of the old city of Jerusalem. And so I, I don't think they would have been crucifying people inside the city. I think that would have happened outside the city, though I'm not sure we know exactly if that's the case or not. I, I just the Bible can't... said he was taken outside, but I'm not let out tr- of the city. Yeah, I, I tried to look that up. I, I, it, I couldn't quite figure that out for sure if that was mentioned. So, I think that was Stephen or Paul or something. I can't remember, but yeah. So you know, I, I, I'll I'll try to look all this stuff up. I'm not trying to give an official report at the moment, but uh, it just to me it seems way too convenient that all of that was it was like obviously it would make sense that the the cross the crosses were could have been there, and then the slab where he was laid, you know, after he had died, I could see that obviously being right next to it. That makes sense. But it's literally like, I, literally, you could throw a baseball from the top of the hill of where the crosses were and have it hit inside the tomb where Jesus was supposedly buried, and it just it it doesn't doesn't make sense to me. So, yeah, it kind of that seems a little bit suspicious to me as well. Um, and then just the fact that like we we didn't officially have this decided as the place until. Constantine's mother shows up and she's just randomly dec- decreeing things because what we what we have to realize is uh, a lot of this wasn't um so like you know the 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 city of Jerusalem wasn't controlled by Christians at this time okay it might actually it might have been I, I'm not sure who was exactly in control of the city of Jerusalem at this time and so it's entirely possible that what she was doing was she was just going around and claiming things as now Christian sites. And so whoever owned that, either it got bought from them or basically the Christians stole it and then built their stuff on it, right? Like, that's what people would be doing at the time is going around and trying to claim different things for different uh, different groups. And so, like, oh, okay. the entire old city of Jerusalem itself... And so this is since 1948, so I don't want to try to confuse things, but I would assume different groups have been trying to control different areas all the way back to just after Christ died. And so uh, Jerusalem, since 1948, uh, the old city has been split up into four sections. And so there is the Christian section, or Christian quarter, the Muslim quarter, the Jewish quarter, and the Armenian quarter. 
And so obviously the Christians have a quarter because that's where like the church of the Holy Sepulchre is and, and those kind of sites. The Muslims have a quarter because they have the temple Mount. And so they, they need to have access to the temple Mount. The Jew, the Jews have a quarter that includes the Western or the Wailing wall. And then the reason the Armenians have a quarter is because they were the first Christian nation. And so they were the first like national group of Christians to show up and to lay claim to a bunch of different things in Jerusalem. And so my guess is that uh, Constantine's mother shows up and sees all these people claiming different things and goes, oh, I can just start claiming these different sites. We can build a church over it, and now that's ours for the next forever. And so, I, I, again, that's all speculation. I I haven't heard a historian claim that or anything like that. That's just the feeling that I get is that Basically, she was just going around kind of claiming things for for Christians now that she was one. So we don't actually know with any kind of certainty if that is the real location. And of course, if you start questioning that, then the people that are in control of that building start getting upset because you're, you know, you're messing with their their livelihoods, essentially. And so yeah. oh, it's, re- it's really crazy. So the Church of the Holy Sepulchre isn't controlled by the Catholics or by any one, uh, like, church or, or one, like, denomination. It's, con- it's controlled by, I believe, six different groups, including the Roman Catholics and the uh, uh, Eastern Orthodox and, I believe, the Armenians and a few others uh, that all have control of that building. And so that's... That's its own uh, insanity. I have a fun story about that <laughs> that I'll tell next time. <laughs> nice. Okay. So, yeah, just kind of the clash, the clashes between the the different denominations. So, all right. I think that's uh, probably pretty good. A uh, little bit about Israel there. I'm I'm thankful to God that I was able to go. Uh, I hope that Joe gets to continue offering these kind of. The goal is that he uh, he wants to offer as cheap as possible uh, trips, and so he's not you know scheduling anything terribly crazy or or out of anybody's budget. Um, the rooms were nice enough. I, I don't have any horrible complaints about it. Everything in Israel is smaller, so as an American who's large, uh, the beds were pretty small. Uh, I would say that the beds were whatever the smallest size in America is. It's probably a little bit narrower than that. <laughs> Wow, is it like are you talking about the beds or like the room or both? The beds, just the beds. The rooms were were decently sized rooms. They weren't the biggest, but they they were normal sized hotel rooms, but the beds specifically were just ridiculously small. <laughs> hmm. Um like I don't think I've been on a bed that small since I was a kid. <laughs> were you bleeding off of it in like every way? <laughs> uh I Fortunately, I think it was long enough. the The problem was it wasn't much wider than like an office chair. Like it was really, it was really narrow. Wow. Uh, yeah. So that I like, was just thinner than a twin bed. It sounds like. <laughs> yes. Whatever the size below a twin is, I think is what they have. It was. It that was the funniest part. Oh, what that was would be funny? Prison cot. <laughs> yeah. Basically. Uh, and so. Uh, when we the the beds where we stayed next to the Sea of Galilee were so super small. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, but then they were a little bit. They were actually a little bit bigger when we were staying. So we stayed like in the old city, which was really cool. 
uh, so that we stayed inside the walls of the old city. And so I actually kind of got to feel, you know, get a feel for walking around there. I could make it by the end of the trip. I could make it from my hotel to uh, like the convenience store around the corner that was cheaper than the tourist stores. <laughs> like I was actually starting to get a, get a little hang of uh, what was going on. So that was a lot of fun. An incredible trip. Uh, I think Joe wants to start doing them more frequently. So maybe next yeah, time uh, cool. we can try to hook you up with a you know get you out there and have some. It's an incredible experience. I I highly recommend it. Yeah, I I would love to go. It would just be really cool to connect with um the the different places that are mentioned in the Bible and just yeah. see Jerusalem and see Bethlehem and see um Nazareth. That'd be really cool to actually get in the water. Was the water warm over there? Uh, the Sea of Galilee. Yeah, it wasn't cold. It, it was it was pretty warm because it's a lake and it's really wow. hot there. And so the water it wasn't cold by any means. Um, wow. The uh the the interesting thing is and the thing that i like most about joe's trips is so a lot of christians will team up with with jewish believers Ideas. um <laughs> will team up with jewish believers when they do these trips and, and unfortunately a lot of jewish people are massively prejudiced or bigoted towards arabs and so what was cool about Joe's trip is we got to see both sides. We got to see Israel and we got to see a little bit of Palestinian authority territory. And so there's just places that a lot of, uh, Jewish or, uh, yeah, Jewish, uh, trips won't go people or trips that are planned by, by kind of Jewish believers. And so it was good to be able to get a, a more complete picture of what Israel is and, and the struggles that people kind of go through. Because if I hadn't gone to Bethlehem, I I wouldn't have been able to actually worship on a Sunday morning with actual other Bible believing Christians. Like you, so here in America, somebody that goes to a church that believes basically the same thing as you is in almost every store you go into. Right? There's going to be somebody that has a similar belief set to you. When you're in Israel, there is nobody else. Okay, the uh, most of the other tour groups that are there are Catholic or Eastern Orthodox or, you know, Buddhist. Okay, and all of the sites are run by Catholics or Eastern Orthodox or, or people that don't have the same beliefs as us. And so actually getting to spend time with other actual believers in Christ that are saved it was that was probably the most beautiful experience and for it to be people in Bethlehem. They're living in the city where Jesus Christ was born, and, you know, they're Christians, and they're just completely persecuted today. They're like point uh, Christians in total, including Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, are like 0.3% of the population. And so you can imagine how small of a number the, the actual Bible-believing Christians are, you know? Yeah. So that, that was... Yeah. Are they like Israeli or Jewish Christians? So in Bethlehem, they are Arabs. And so they're Arab Christians. Yeah, they're super persecuted. Super persecuted. So in, in Bethlehem, because it's Palestinian Authority territory, there are no Jews. Absolutely none. Uh so okay. everybody that's there is basically everybody that basically lives there is an Arab. What's the what's the feeling of that you got? 
um, from Arabs towards Christians? Is it just as bad as the Jews or not really? Uh, so the biggest tensions are between the Arabs and the Jews themselves. So neither one of those groups want you as a Jew or an Arab to convert. Uh, uh, the, the, the Jews, they won't necessarily kill you for it, but they would want to. The Arabs might actually, you, you might actually end up, a mob shows up at your house and, and you get actually murdered if you convert to Christianity uh, f from being a Muslim specifically. So, okay. so with Arabs, there's, you know, the majority of them are Muslim, but then there's also going to be some that are Eastern Orthodox or some that are Catholic as well. And so converting from the Eastern Orthodox or Catholic, you probably won't, won't get like murdered, but converting from Islam that has a whole bunch of ramifications for you and your family and all sorts of stuff. So it's, it's real tough for believers over there. And, uh, I don't have any more details. I was hoping to, to get some more from Joe. Uh, but what he has tried to work out or is trying to work out is a way to collect donations and to buy the children in Bethlehem school supplies. And so basically the, the goal is, uh, basically, I think it's like 50 bucks, We'll be able to purchase a backpack and a year's worth of school supplies for the kids that are in Bethlehem. So Very cool. I'll uh, I'll keep you guys up to date. We might uh, end up doing a little bit of a fundraiser for them if we can figure that out. And if okay. that's something you're, I'm, I would assume you're cool with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, so. Even if it even if it wasn't for a religious cause, I think you know giving kids school supplies is is a good thing to do. There's nothing wrong with that, and they'd be very thankful and grateful for that yeah and and it's just i i really want to bless these people they're they're so they're they're so incredible just the the amount of faith and 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 persecution that you face as a as a christian over there and and the fact that they're you know they're they're actual brothers and sisters in christ that are are, are just going through these crazy conditions so like it's so like i said the the palestinian authority territory and the israeli territory the arabs that are there so the, the Arab Christians that are there can't go to Tel Aviv to, to, uh, to get to the airport to, to fly out, okay? And so, uh, you know, if you're in Bethlehem and you want to travel, where do you go? Well, you have to go through three different border checkpoints to get over into Jordan in order to be able to travel anywhere outside of Bethlehem. And so, like... So there's no leaving. Basically, you're, you're not allowed to leave. Like, it's very difficult for you to leave. It's very difficult for you to travel and move around. It's, it, it's, it's a pretty crazy situation because we're not talking about a large area. The entirety of Israel is about the size of the state of New Jersey. And so, you know, Bethlehem is, is a small little, like, county, maybe, the size. You know, kind of the size of a small little county. Not even the size of Orange County. That would be huge. Uh, this is really, really tiny. And so uh, it looks like um, in October, some of the Arabs who have American passports might start being able to use Tel Aviv, uh, the Tel Aviv airport. Uh, so that would help out uh, the guy that we met with. And uh, it won't help him out because he's not uh, an American, but his wife is American and his kids are Americans. And so they might be able to go travel through Tel Aviv and then he would have to go and travel separately from them through Jordan, which is just, it's crazy. It's it's, but that potentially might get solved in October. So we'll, we'll see. Huh. 
just just be um, praying for him and and yeah yeah definitely i it's it's kind of like the same situation with like china not to like get into mm-hmm. all of that but you got to super play ball in order to even get a plane ticket and like yeah. it's it's incredible that we even have chinese americans over here that they're like that they're willing to come here after the, all they've been told about america which is yeah. nuts you know what i mean yep. definitely but yeah and i guess the the overwhelming thing that that i was thinking about while i was in palestinian authority territory was just looking back at jerusalem and knowing that someday these christians who are being persecuted here are going to get to march into jerusalem with king jesus like uh, you know at some point we will win jesus christ will return he is going to rule from jerusalem and these people that aren't allowed to freely travel there right now they're going to be the ones that are in charge because of the faith that they have in jesus christ and so you know that that was just such a an inspiring kind of thought to think about like i'm going to get to march with them they're going to get to march with jesus and we're all just going to be going in taking over that land and turning it into what God actually intended for it to be someday. So. Yeah, that's, um, it's incredible. I honestly have been, I've legitimately been praying for the Lord's soon return. I want to see him come back today. (laughs) To be completely (laughs) honest. Amen. Um, Amen. (laughs) Um, all right. So let's get into your, as it is. Oh, wait, really quick before I do that. Um, Mm -hmm. what is like a, what is like a round flight? Um, ticket to Israel cost. Uh, I paid thirteen fifty, I think. So uh, fourteen bucks, awesome. Four... <laughs> <laughs> one th- one thousand three hundred and fifty, roughly, somewhere in there. That so is, not... That's a big ticket, but uh, not extremely crazy. Yeah. yeah, not not out of the realm of possibility for for anybody. Uh, obviously, it's tough. Um, but uh. Yeah, and then the rest of the trip, I think, came out to twenty seven fifty, all included. So that was food, everything but the, uh, the knickknacks that I bought. Yeah. Okay. So. All right. Yeah. Let's get into that. Um, as it is written, clip it, the 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 share the activity thing kept like losing connection and reconnecting. So that's why why it kept playing. So I apologize for that. Yeah, right. sorry about that, everybody. Let me let me try to get that up so we can watch it. I'm trying to remember how all that works. There we go. Okay. Uh, all right. Wait, one one second. No, where is it? Uh. So okay, there we go. And then while this is playing, I'm just gonna um I'll turn my camera off for a brief moment. Um, I do have to use the restroom, so I'm gonna click play, and then I'm gonna really quickly step out. Okay. All right. And in three, two, one. With the recent hearings on UFOs and UAPs, I wanted to bring you one of my more radical ideas. Certainly not saying this is a fact, but as someone who believes in premillennial, pre-tribulation eschatology, which is a theological interpretation of the end times in Christianity, I have faith that believers will be raptured or taken up to heaven before a period of tribulation and the second coming of Christ. In this framework, today I'm proposing a theory that UFO sightings are actually a government cover-up for the rapture. This belief rests on the idea that the government, aware of the impending rapture and the chaos it could cause, has fabricated the UFO phenomenon as a possible and tangible diversion to maintain public order. 
Therefore, when the rapture happens and numerous people suddenly disappear, the government can attribute these vanishings to extraterrestrial activity. Again, this is only going to be something you can confirm if I suddenly disappear. If you're watching this, put your trust in Jesus now. If you're left behind, trust in Jesus. It's going to be a hard road for you. So, uh, this is a, a video that I made uh, right after I got back from Jerusalem. And so, uh, the reason... Uh, so, I, like uh, it was saying, um, I think that there is a lot of stuff that's been going on in the media and in our government that has been alluding to or outright saying that there are aliens in existence. So I don't believe that there are actual beings from other planets that are coming here and interacting with us. My belief is that it's actually demons and that, uh, that um, basically what's happening is the government is using the, these uh, UFO sightings, what I believe are demon sightings, and they are claiming they're UFOs. And so at some point in the future, when the rapture does happen, like I, like I was talking about with Austin a minute ago, uh, when the rapture does happen, they will have a plausible explanation as to where all of these people just randomly disappeared to. And when I say all these people, I'm not talking about billions of people. The, the rapture is not going to be the entirety of the Catholic Church, okay? Uh, the rapture is going to be a very small subset of actual believers in Christ that put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ alone, Okay. Anybody that's adding works to their salvation, if you have to work for your salvation, if you can't be sure that you are saved, then you are going to be left behind. If you, if you do any of those sorts of things and trust in anything other than what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross, you're going to get left behind. And so, I, you know, like I said in the, in the video, put your faith and your trust in Jesus now. But if you don't and you do get left behind, I, I personally believe that there will be an opportunity for you to be saved. It's just going to be a really hard road and it's going to be really tough. There, there's going to be uh, the mark of the beast is going to take place, I believe, after the church is already gone. And so it's going to be tough for you to buy and to sell unless you have that mark. Uh, and, and there's just going to be a whole lot of persecution going on. So that's yes. that's what I that's yeah. nuts. Mm hmm. But, uh, you know, I just, I, I think it's an interesting, you know, because like, uh, you know, Joe Rogan talks about UFOs all the time. You know, our society is starting to talk about UFOs more and we're starting to take that more seriously than we have in the past. And so I think that to me, that just seems like it's something that's getting ready to explain something that's going to happen. That's, that's just kind of the feeling that I get. And, you know, we're, we're closer every day. And I'm not going to give any kind of a, a day or an hour because nobody knows the day or the hour. But, you know, every single second we're getting closer to the rapture. And so, you know, there, there's only so much time left that we have to make the important decisions that we need to make. Uh, the other cool thing is, is I believe that what will kick off the rapture is what's called the fullness of the Gentiles. And mm -hmm. so it talks about having the fullness of the Gentiles come into the church and what I believe that is saying is that uh, the as soon as the last person to get saved into the church before the rapture takes place, that's a specific number that God has uh, prepared beforehand. As soon as that number is completed, he's going to come back and take us all up to be with him. So, Is that essentially that... like his foreknowledge of all the people that would come to faith? He's waiting for that last person to come to faith type of thing? 
basically, yeah. And so what what I believe is that God foreknew uh, the choices that we would make, and he foreknew the fact that we would have faith and trust in him. And so because of that, he has predestined us to go and to be with him in heaven. And so that's kind of the chain that we see in scripture is that it calls for everyone to have faith. We are all called to have faith. So what could faith mean if it isn't a choice for me to believe in God out of my own free will and to give my life over to Jesus Christ uh, because I've decided to do that, not because God has created me one way or another. God created me to be in communion with him. He created you to be in communion with him. He created every single human being to be in communion with him, to live with him, and to be uh, his creation and, and, and something that he loves forever. And what has happened is we've sinned and we've, we've separated ourselves from God by choice. And despite that, he loves us so much that he decided to throw us a lifeline through his son, Jesus Christ, and the, the sacrifice that he made on the cross to save us from the consequences of those sins that we commit. And so I don't believe that God doesn't allow people to get saved. I think people make that choice out of their own free will. And he, you know, predestined us in the fact that he knew who would make the choice to ultimately be saved. So, so I have a quick thing that I would like for you to touch on. And we've, we've touched on it in, in a couple different episodes, but one thing that's really been putting, uh, I feel like God's been putting on my heart is to live for him, like literally follow Jesus and live for him. You know, the Bible says to pick up my cross or pick up your cross and follow me. And so I basically just want to ask you, um, one more time, what does repentance mean? And can I just confess Jesus is Lord and then live however I want and do whatever I want and then say Jesus is going to forgive me? So basically, that's a big criticism that comes to our way as Christians is all oh, you just you're just going to do whatever you want, kill whoever you want, you know, steal from whoever you want and then call on Jesus for forgiveness and stuff like that. So I'm just kind of wondering where where does the pick up your cross and follow me um, live your life for Jesus and like the whole repentance thing come in? Because I know we're supposed to repent and believe the gospel. So I'm just kind of, um, I'm still trying to develop my understanding of this. So. Yeah, and and that's something that, you know, different Christian denominations have been arguing over for centuries, right? So the, the, the term in the Bible for repentance in Greek, so this is in the New Testament, is metanoia. So meta is like, that's the word that we're using all over the place today. That's the metaverse. Uh, and all basically all it means is to change your mind. It means to to have a, 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 a change of heart, to go from t- looking at one thing, you turn and you look away from it completely. And so what repentance means is to change your mind from being, uh, you know, pointed towards sin and your own lustful desires and, and the things that you want and to change your mind and to point it towards what God wants. And so that's what true repentance is. is it's, it's admitting that your wants and desires are evil and wrong and wicked, and that what God wants for you is perfect and righteous and just, and what he wants for you is, is infinitely better than what you could ever want. And, and, and so that's ultimately what I believe repentance is. And then you can do that on an individual basis. So, you, you know, you're going to sin... As a Christian, you're going to commit sin. There, there are some Christians who believe that you can become a Christian and then never sin again. Uh, I don't believe that's the case. 
I, I don't think that we are given the ability to be completely perfect. I, I think that we are in a process where we begin to sin less and less. And so can you kind of repeat your questions a little bit? Uh, just so I want to make sure I answer. So it was like, um, like what it basically pick up your cross and follow me. What does it mean to um, live your life for Jesus? And then like the whole repentance thing and you, and you covered the repentance thing. Yeah. It sounds like disagreeing with your own de desires. Like I think it's okay to lie, cheat, steal, murder, you know what I mean? And then you go, you know what, God, you're right. Um, it, that is wrong. I shouldn't do that. And then that's, is that what you're kind of saying? Repentance is, is like an agreement with God that his standard is correct. Yeah. I would say ultimately that it is an, it is going from my own standards to God's standards. And so, okay. uh, I, I, one thing I would, I would argue with a little bit in what you said is that most people have a conscience. Most people think that they are against murder and against lying and against cheating, right? So you go and talk to an atheist, they'll claim that they have a, a certain amount of morality. They, they don't know how they derived it, but they, they'll claim they have a certain amount of morality. So a lot of people will already agree, yes, murder is wrong, yes, lying is wrong, yes, stealing is wrong, right? So I don't think people are changing their minds about those basic facts too much. Um, mostly what people are changing their minds about is, Am I the one that's best capable of deciding what should be done with my life or is God? And so, you know, before you have faith in God, you're, you're putting complete faith in your own judgment and in what you're going to do with your life. And then when you put your faith in God, you're, you're putting your faith in him that he has better judgment than you and that the standards that he has set up in the Bible are better for your life than what you were doing beforehand, Right. So I think that's really, I think that's what repentance consists of is trusting not in your own standards, in your own logic, in your own understanding, but trusting in God's. Okay. Um, uh, yeah. Where would like the pick up your cross and follow me and living for Jesus kind of, what, what, what does that look like? Um, and where does that tie in to the whole thing? Because I know you, what your faith how you get saved essentially is agreeing that Jesus is the Messiah and that he died for your sins and was risen, right? That's the juice of the salvation or the soteriology, right? And so after you become a Christian, what now? Like, and so that's what I'm kind of wondering is if you became a Christian, you confess Jesus as your Lord, and then you basically just kind of go back to what you were doing or you don't really change at all. What's kind of going on there? Is that just kind of like a lip service profession of faith or like, what would you say about that? So I, I think that what you have to do is, you know, we're, we're called as Christians to be fruit inspectors. So what, uh, what, what the Bible says is that those who have Christ in them will start producing good fruit, okay? And so what you will see in the life of someone who has, you know, converted from their, the belief in themselves to a belief in God, what you will see is that that person will begin to start producing good fruit. And so that's that that's what that pick up your cross and follow me is talking about. It's saying every single day of your life, you're going to try to deny your flesh. flesh. You're going to try to deny the, the worldly desires that you have to gratify yourself in all sorts of different ways. Right. You're going to deny that as best you can with God's help. And you're going to turn and you're going to do the things that God has commanded you to do and, the, and God has put on your heart to do. 
And so that's kind of what the picking your cross up part is talking about. We have a very hard time understanding this as Christians in the United States. So again, you know, what we were talking about with Israel, we, we face basically no persecution at all in this country for our faith. And so you can claim to be a Christian all day long, and that will, for the most part, not really impact your, your work or your social life or anything like that, right? Like, you could probably get, a, get away with 90% of what you are, like, 90% of what you're currently doing will be completely unaffected if you were to change and give your life over to Christ here in the United States. But in other places, it's just saying that you're a Christian has huge costs associated with it. And so just saying that every single day is bearing your, is bearing the, you know, your cross in those other countries. Uh, I think that here in the United States, we've got to work a little bit harder, not in the sense that we need to work for our salvation, but in the sense that it's not a burden for us to just claim Christ because of the historical uh, context of the United States. And, and so what we need to do as Christians is we need to be bold and use the freedoms that God has given us to proclaim the gospel every single place that we can. And, and so I think that's, that's where you're going to start finding persecution. Okay. So like, I'm, I'm not going to say this is horrible persecution and that I went through some horrible trial, but you know, you can post TikTok videos of you dancing and twerking and doing all kinds of stuff all day. But the second that you want to post a video about, you know, responding to Joe Rogan claiming that God made people gay, right? The second you make that video, TikTok, you know, banned my account and tried to, uh, you know, get, take me down, right? And so that's, again, not horrible persecution in the sense that I was, uh, you know, I'm, I'm relying on TikTok for my income. But next year, uh, two years from now, you know, maybe we have a bigger podcast. Maybe we are relying a little bit on income we make from this and that a ban somewhere does have an effect that is persecution at that point right and so i i think that what it looks like to bear your cross is to just do what christ or do what god has for your life walk the places that he wants you to be and you know that's going to be you bearing your your cross you know at some point he's going to put you somewhere that's going to be tough that's going to be difficult where you will be persecuted but ultimately he's going to get you through that and he's going to be your, you know, he's the reason why you're doing it in the first place. And ultimately, even if you do end up dying or suffering at some point, you're going to be with God in heaven. And that's going to be completely worth all of the pain and the suffering that we went through here. So, yeah. Amen. Hopefully that answered your questions. <laughs> no, it does. And, uh, and it, I, I, I want the, the viewers to kind of understand, like it's, it's important, you know, you got to, got to obey the bible and it's not like it's not faith in jesus is what gets you saved but as a christian you should be obeying like what the lord says and why do you call me lord if you do not do what i ask and if you love me you'll obey my commands mm -hmm. and so that's kind of that's kind of just what i was like looking at and stuff like that you know yeah and it's it's really easy to think that doing those things are what saves you and and as human beings, what we want and what we desire is to have a checklist of works that we can do. Oh, I did this. I raised this much money for the church. I, you know, I converted this many people. I'm getting into heaven. I have it all checked off. Like, I've, you know, I've got all the, uh, I did all the things. And now I deserve to be in heaven. When the reality is that no one deserves to be in heaven except for Jesus Christ and God. And 
what we're doing when we're, we're doing these works is not to in order to earn our salvation, but because we already have our salvation, right? Yeah. That's the, that's a that's response the, to, yeah. Exactly. Just like uh, the Bible uses uh, uh, food analogies and agricultural analogies quite frequently because that's what everybody knew at the time. And what the Bible says, or what Jesus says specifically, is that what you know what's going to happen is we're, we 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 have faith, and then uh, we start producing fruit, right? Like a tree, a good tree can't help but produce good fruit. A bad tree can't help but produce bad fruit. And so, as soon as God changes us from a bad tree into a good tree, we are not going to be able to help but do good works. And so. The, the the good fruit tree isn't saved by the fruit that it produces, okay? It, that is a natural reaction to being in good soil and having all the nutrients that it needs. That's just what happens. And so a, a Christian that's in a good church, that's growing spiritually and healthily, right? Like, you are just, by definition, going to start doing things that please God rather than things that anger Him. And, and so those things that please God are going to anger society they're going to anger the people around you they're going to anger the government they're going to anger so, you know all sorts of different people and so that's when that's why it's called bearing your cross okay because it's not going to be all easy and 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 you know it, it, it's not going to be heaven now we have to get through earth first and so here on earth we're going to face persecution and we're going to face hard times and turmoil and trouble but ultimately, God tells us that as Christians, he's going to get us through that. He's going to, uh, you know, we're supposed to give our burdens over to God. It, it talks about us being yoked to him. Okay. It's, it, so that talks, it's, talk, it's another agricultural reference. Uh, a yoke was a way to tie two beasts of burden together so they could share a load. And so uh, when it's talking about, you know, God... Uh, God wants to take a, the load off our backs, basically, to help us get through those tough situations that we get that we get put into because of our faith. So, what what does he say about that? My um, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, or something like that. I, yeah, something something about that, something close to that. I can look it up <laughs> if we want, but uh, it's okay. Yeah, so you know that's that. It's tough, you know, especially as an American Christian who isn't going to, by default, face persecution for your beliefs. It's tough to understand that by being a Christian, just necessarily you're going to be attacked. So, and honestly, like it, it's just weird. I've felt like a strange opposition to, like, since becoming a Christian. I don't know how to exactly describe it because. Sometimes it'll manifest itself through people, but mm -hmm. oftentimes it'll manifest itself through just different life struggles. And like I've just felt like a lot of different things kind of start to get harder as I became a Christian, but it's all going to be worth it. Like in Amen. the end, everything that comes my way, the Lord's going to get me through it, and he provides every time. And I always get so shook up every time I have something in my life <laughs> that seemingly gets ripped under my feet. And when I look back at my life, it's so easy to see God working. Like if you like, I don't. I'll, I'll put it this way: if you walk forward, it's kind of hard to see what God's doing. But when you look backwards 
at all he has done, it, it's easy to understand, yeah, God is real. He is here. He is working. He does love me. He is providing. He is faithful. So why am I, why am I tripping right now? Why am I, why am I getting, uh, it, it's just weird. So I noticed that like, he's just, he's just here and he is working. But whenever something comes my way, I just can't help but get, you know, nervous and, and shook up about it. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, you know, I still get that way too. So I'm not trying to say that it will go away completely, but I, I think as you grow in your, your knowledge and your understanding of God and in your walk with God, it, it does get a little bit easier, right? Now yeah. he's going to start throwing tougher things at you and different things at you, but especially, you know, as you walk more with God and grow in your knowledge and your relationship with him, it it, it just gets easier to give that all over to him. I, I think, and I, you know, I haven't been through anything too terrible. I, I guess the worst thing in my life was when my dad passed away, but you know, ultimately like everyone's going to go through their parents dying at some point. And so the thing, the bad things in my life that have happened again, they pale in comparison to what anybody in any other country is going through as a Christian, just guaranteed. So I'm, I'm so very thankful to be in this country where being a Christian isn't just default persecution, but uh, definitely you're going to go through hard times. You're going to have people that get angry with you because of your belief in Christ. But the promises that we have is that we give that burden over to God and he, he's going to shoulder it for us. He's going to bear it and get us through whatever that is. And, and so, you know, I'll keep, I'll, I'll be praying for you and, and everything that's, that's going, going on with you and, you know, that's why uh, it's so important that we have brothers and sisters in Christ that we commune with on a regular basis, and, and we can kind of share that burden with them as well. Yeah. All right. So now, what do we, what do we have? So we did the AIIW reaction, Israel. All right, now we're moving on to Proverbs. Let's go yes. ahead and do that. Let me get that pulled up. Okay. There we go. It's like I know what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> if this is your first time um, hearing Proverbs or anything like that, um, is, is Proverbs essentially a book of wisdom written by King David's son Solomon, or is there a little bit more to it? Sorry, something weird just happened. Uh, yes, so Proverbs is a book that is written by King David's son Solomon. And uh, it is basically just a book of wisdom. And so, uh, uh, like, it, it is a, I think it's the only book that's like that in, in the Bible. I don't think that there are any other books strictly written uh, with a bunch of different kind of disjointed uh, verses. So uh, there will be some sections that all have a similar kind of theme to them. But for the most part, Saul, uh, Proverbs is just kind of short little, uh, little one-liners or little quotes to help you live a, a better life, basically. And then I remember I was hearing about this recently. Um, correct me where I'm wrong. Um, the Lord basically approaches Solomon and says, I will grant you a wish, anything you ask. And he goes, okay. Give me wisdom and discernment to lead your people. And he goes, because you have not asked for money or possessions, 
I'm going to give that to you anyway, as well as the wisdom that you're asking for. Something like that, right? And then Solomon was known as the wisest man that ever lived, as well as, like, the richest man that ever lived. Um, yeah, That's my understanding. All right, so that comes from... Oh, that, that isn't right. Sorry, I thought I had this all pulled up. It was going to be real slick. Uh... <laughs> Okay, go. All right, so that, that comes from 1 Kings 3. And we'll just go read it real quick. Might as well, right? Yeah. So, I, um, uh, that's a, there's a lot of books, like Chronicles, Kings, Joshua. There's a lot of books I still need to read in the Old Testament, and this is one of them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, basically, um, Solomon has just done, I think it's like a thousand sacrifices uh to uh Ooh. to uh open up or kind of start the the temple that he just built okay uh He's christening in that altar <laughs> there we go christening there we go that's a good that is a good term uh so um yeah okay now the king went to gibeon to sacrifice there for that was the great high place, Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask, what shall I give you? Okay, sorry, I had that completely wrong, and I apologize. Uh, this was not the temple. He was going to build that in the future. Uh, but this is a, I think this is kind of the start of his reign. Um, and so it said, so they went to Gibeon to sacrifice there. I'm not quite sure where that is. Uh, and so Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. And then at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said, you have shown great mercy to your servant, David, my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him and you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I do not know how to go or out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? And then verse 10. The speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. Then God said to him, Because you have asked this thing, and have not asked long life for yourself, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice, behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart, so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall any like you arise after you. And I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all your days. So if you walk in my ways to keep my statues and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And this had all been in a dream. Oh, that's the next verse. So... Uh, what really what Solomon asked for is he understood the weight and the gravity of the situation that he was in. Okay. He was being asked to lead 
the people that God, God's chosen people. Okay, these are an incredibly special and important group of people on this earth. And he understood the monumental task that was put before him. And, and I'm sure he knew about all the ways that his dad had failed and had done horribly evil and wrong things. But despite all of that, his father knew how to repent. He knew how to uh, turn away from those wicked things that he had done and turn back to God in a way that pleased him. And so ultimately what, what Solomon knew he needed was wisdom and understanding and knowledge so that he could lead God's people and that that ultimately would be his greatest challenge. And so I, I think that it's incredible that he had the, the wisdom already to even ask for that, right? That it, that anyone, right? Like you give that option to most people and they're going to be asking for riches or women or, you know, you could name a whole bunch of things, right? But yeah, that option was given to him and, and he didn't ask for any of those things. He asked for the one thing that he, he couldn't get any other way, and that's wisdom to lead God's people. And so I, I think that's we that that's a that's something we should be asking God's God for. Um you Wisdom, know. discernment, and an understanding heart. <laughs> well and and you know, as priests and as kings, we we have a, a similar, not as weighty role to play, but you know, there there are people that we will need to lead in our lives that we need wisdom in order to be able to do that, right? And and so I think yeah. it, it, that is something that, that we need to be asking God for as well uh, to, to help us and, you know, to make the right decisions in our own lives, you know? Uh, you know, at the very yeah. least, you have a, a wife to lead, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> and, and you need the wisdom and the understanding in order to do that properly in, in all sorts of different ways, so. Yeah. And uh, you know it's it's interesting the um not that they are an authority uh, because they've they've given away their understanding and knowledge of the scriptures but one of the uh, the ways that the Jews kind of think of a family or or a, of uh, yeah a family or of a man is as the start of a a nation so out of a man and a woman can come an entire group of people. So like from Abraham and Sarah, God created the entire Jewish nation. He created all of the Arabs, you know, all sorts of different people came out of that relationship. And so even though you might not feel it right now, you're you and, and your wife might be the start of a huge and wonderful, you know, tribe of people. That's how you should kind of see it. At yeah. least. And so there's a, a big responsibility in setting that up properly and, and so that that will be sustained over generations. And, yeah. and, and the other, the other, the other thing about Christianity is, is God doesn't have any grandchildren. And, and so, you know, the way that you live now and, and the way that I live now affects how, what our kids are going to, um, if I have any, and if you have any, are going to to see in us and that's going to affect whether or not they end up choosing and deciding to become Christians themselves. So. Yeah, it's true. Um, I don't know. I guess uh, having an authentic faith and being genuine in that is very attractive than putting a load on my kids or someone that I couldn't even myself, you know, bear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. All right, uh, so that's a little bit of a backgrounder on King Solomon.
Oh, wow. We're already an hour and a half into this. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> um, so uh, do you know where we left off with Proverbs? Or um, I think this is actually it. I don't think we um, have gotten onto a third proverb yet. Okay. Uh, so I'm just going to read like the first six verses, I think. It just sounded like a good number. Uh, Seven. I would, but then it gets into... So they're not uh, a little bit of a background on the Bible for those of you who might not know. The chapters were not added into the Bible until the 1300s, I believe. And then uh, the verses were not added into the Bible until like the eight, like the 17 or 1800s. And so our modern like Bible has stuff in it that wasn't in it before. And the verse breaks and the chapter breaks are not inspired by God. They're just the way that they are so that we can more easily look them up and, uh, and get to the specific place that we're talking about. So you just said you wanted me to read verse 7, right? If I were to do yeah. that, I, I'd also have to read verse 8, and I think that's just a little bit too long uh, for what we're doing right now. Okay. So I don't, you know what I mean? I just, there's a yeah. lot, there's a lot that are in each of these little uh, verses, um, and so I just want to be able to discuss kind of that kind of stuff if, if that comes up, uh, just so you understand my thinking. And so... Like, six isn't a great number. A lot of Christians kind of avoid the, the number six. Um, it's uh, If you look at Revelation, the number of a man is 666. And so that's kind of where uh, we get our aversion to that number from. Um, but uh, and, then the num- and then the number seven in the Bible is seen as a number of completeness. Uh, that was the end of the week. That's the day that God rested. And so we see that as the, the, complete, the completed number. Um, I know that uh, 12 is the number of government and 40 is the number of judgment, I think. Uh, yeah, I think you're, yeah, I believe you're correct on that. And so, like, uh, like there were, it was 40 years in uh, the wilderness between Egypt and Canaan. Uh, for the Israelites, it was 40 days and 40 nights of rain. Jesus Christ was uh, fasted for 40 days. So I, I think you're right about that number 40 um, and that sort of stuff. Okay. So, uh, Psalm chapter three, and we're going to look at verses one through six. And so it says, my son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands for length of days and long life and peace. They will add to you. Let not mercy and truth forsake you, bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart. And so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Okay, so there's a lot in, the, in this first six verses here. Um, so if you look up at that first section, it says, uh, Do not let your heart, but let your heart keep my commands for length of days and long life and peace. It will, okay, sorry, look at the second section. Um where it says, write them on the tablet of your heart, bind them around your neck. Uh, I think that might crop up in another place in the scripture as well. And so you'll see that Jews actually will get uh, put scripture um, around their neck. So they'll get like a little scroll and they'll put scripture around their neck as kind of like a necklace, I believe. <laughs> I've even um, seen <clears throat> Messianic Jews 
um, strap something to their forehead and put something on their right hand. And yes. So I, yeah. Exactly. So I believe that there's a other few scriptures where it talks about physically putting scripture onto your body. What I believe the, the, the Bible is actually talking about here is it's saying that, that you should know it, okay? Uh, let not mercy and truth forsake you, bind them around your neck. It's, it's not saying that you can bind mercy and truth to your body. What it's saying is that they should be so closely tied to who you are that it's as if they're bound around your neck. Like, does that make sense? It's as if yeah. it's a necklace that you... Because the other thing is we, we've kind of lost the meaning and, and understanding of what jewelry is. Okay, so in ancient times, the reason why women had jewelry is that was uh, some of the, the few things that women could actually own. And so when a woman has a really nice necklace, that's hers. And so if her man ever dies or forsakes her or leaves her or anything happens to the man, she's got this jewelry that she can sell and she can work out how to live in the meantime. Okay. And so what this is saying is that don't, so I, again, this is me kind of extrapolating here. So I don't want you to think this is a hundred percent scriptural, but I think kind of what this is getting at is don't put your faith and trust in jewelry around your neck, put your faith and trust in, in mercy and truth. Uh, Cause they won't, you know, they're not going to forsake you. I think yeah. that's kind of what it's saying again, please write in, please uh, call, you know, text us or, or comment somewhere and call me out if there's something I got wrong there. I don't want to be teaching anything incorrect, um, but I believe that's kind of what it's what it's going for. Uh, then it says, write them on the tablet of your heart. Obviously, you can't take your heart out and there isn't a stone to etch in mercy and truth, right? It, it, it's, some, it's talking about us, you know, doing that in our daily lives and deciding to do it and then that what that's going to do is once you've decided to do it, once you act it out every day in your life, then you're going to it's going to be written in your heart. It's going to be part of who you are. Uh, and so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. And then uh, this is a pretty common. Uh, actually, there's a children's song that has trust in the Lord with all your heart and lead on on your own understanding and all your ways. Acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths, I believe. Yeah, I believe there's a children's song about that, but uh, yeah, I think that's just beautiful. That's what we all should be doing is trusting in the Lord with all of our hearts and not leaning on our own understandings. What does that mean to lean on your own understanding? Is it, um, is it like earthly, fleshly human wisdom? Yeah, basically what it's saying is that, uh, you know, you, 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 get an, you get a couple options put before you. You might want to make a snap judgment and go, oh, this is what I'm going to do. This sounds good to me. What it's saying is don't lean on your own understanding. What you should do in that situation is you should take a step back, think about it, pray about it, read the scriptures, and let God tell you what you should do in that situation rather than your own human understanding because we're going to be wrong a lot of the times. And um, so, sorry. and sorry, it's also specifically taught in, in reference to trust in the Lord with all your heart. Okay, so... Uh, you, what your heart wants to do, okay, is it wants to build idols, it wants to have a physical thing that it can see and, and look at and know that God's in that thing, and that if I offer to that thing, I know that I'm going to receive mercy from that thing, right? That's what your heart yeah. wants to do. 
So it's saying trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And so what your heart wants to do is not lean on God, not lean on the the right things of the world, but to lean on idols and your own human understanding. Okay. All right. And then I was, I I don't, huh, let me know if you even want to touch this, but um, I was re I recently got into a conversation with somebody who was Eastern Orthodox, and they were basically pushing me really hard on my ability to interpret Scripture. And mm -hmm. so, from a Protestant perspective, is can can Scripture be understood and interpreted correctly? And how would you do that in the first place? So the the issue that I have with people saying that basically was his argument that you shouldn't be reading scripture yourself because you can't understand. No, it. his argument was that he could point to a line of uh, successors that ultimately end up at an apostle and be and that their interpretation is the standard for interpretation. The yeah, apostle's okay. interpretation gotcha. and that uh, something along the lines of like. Um, what is your standard for interpreting the Bible? I said the Bible, and he said a text cannot interpret itself. And that was kind of the premise. So uh, I, I would agree that a text can't interpret itself, uh, a singular text, but the Bible is not a singular text, okay? So what you were saying is you were talking about the Bible as a as a singular item, which it is now, but it's made up of 66 different components. And so... When I am looking at Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, I am filtering that through my understanding of Genesis 2. Not Genesis, the chapter 2, but just Genesis as well. And so what, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to read the scripture or hear the scripture for yourself, and you're supposed to uh, come to an understanding of what that means based on what the entirety of the rest of the scripture means as well. And so instead of doing that, what... Uh, Catholics and Eastern Orthodox have done is they have put their faith into men. Okay. They, they've decided that they're not going to have faith in what God has given to us. They're going to have faith instead in these men that came and decided what these scriptures mean. And so what God gave us is the ability to rationally think through and, and, and look at things logically and come to an understanding of what the the what that means in every other aspect of our lives but in this one aspect of our lives we are supposed to give all of our uh free will all of our understanding all of our everything over to this other man and ultimately what uh what will help a christian understand and what will illuminate the bible to you is the holy spirit and so what you should say if you get asked this question again is not that the Bible interprets itself for me, but that the Holy Spirit gives me an understanding of what Scripture is supposed to mean. Oh, I did, and he said, how do you know it's the Holy Spirit? Yeah, okay. So then, you know, the, the, the fact is... I said, is, it's if um, what I feel is coming from the Holy Spirit, if it contradicts Scripture, then it's not the Holy Spirit. If it agrees with Scripture, then it is. And then he went back to my ability to interpret Scripture. So yeah. it was a very circular argument. <laughs> yep. And so ultimately, uh, they, th these people that are outside of the true church want to ascribe earthly authority to other human beings that just isn't there in the scripture. Nowhere in the Bible does it say anything about an apostolic succession being necessary for anything. 
nowhere does it say that you know god's gonna institute peter as the first pope and that he's gonna be the one in charge of determining what everything means and that you have to look to him authoritatively for everything it's it's just a, a, a an entire belief system that is completely absent from the new testament so like if you were to go and read the new testament as someone who has no understanding of the catholic church or the protestant church or any kind of church whatsoever you would never come up with the systems that they've come up with okay it just it wouldn't happen you you there are instances of you know, people laying hands on other people, and there are instances of, you know, uh, different offices, you know, having successors to them, but that doesn't mean that that successor needed to have had Peter's hands laid on him or anything crazy like that. What we see in, in the New Testament is that it's a, it, it is a religion of, of freedom, okay? It's a religion where we aren't tied down to other human beings who are in charge of our faith, the only person that's in charge of my faith is Jesus Christ. There is one mediator Amen. between God and man. That is the man Christ Jesus. Okay? And so, if your interpretation means that that verse doesn't mean exactly what it says, then you're wrong. Okay? Uh, like, what they're trying to say is that you need to have other men in between you and God who can explain to you what it means to be a Christian. And that's just completely absurd and it's completely false and wrong when it comes to uh, what the Bible actually teaches us. And so you'll see in the Old Testament, there was a priestly, you know, there was a system, right? That uh, the rest of the, the Jewish people couldn't come to God except through that priestly system. What we see in Christianity is that now that system has been applied to us the second that you put your faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone, you become a Christian and you are now a priest. And so you now have the role of the the priests in the Old Testament. And so you don't need anybody else except for our high priest, Jesus Christ, in order to relate to the Father. And and so, unfortunately, every time that that you see... Uh, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is, unfortunately, these other religions, the Eastern Orthodox and the Catholics, have put so many other people in between you and God. Uh, the Bible specifically says, you know, call no man your father, call no man on earth your father. But they've decided that their priests can be called father and, you know, all all this other stuff. Like well, They said that that only has to do with the context that it was provided in and that there, it's only referring to Pharisees. That's basically the answer I got for that. <laughs> it, it, yeah, which is absurd. What it's refer if it's if it's if it's referring to Pharisees, it's referring to everyone that has Pharisaical beliefs. Okay, it, it is so. It, like, if we were to look at the verse, the verse literally just says, "Call no man on earth your father." It's not in. It, it says, "What are the Pharisees the only people that are that can't call anyone else father?" It doesn't even well, make no, sense. Yeah, they, they just basically said don't call Pharisees father is, is what the answer was to that. And so where I push back on that is if we're going to look at the Bible as contextual and that's the only way it can be applied, then nothing can be applied to you because it was all said before you. Do, do you know what I mean? So if, if Jesus is teaching something in the New Testament and it's saying if you give to the least of these, then you give it to me, 
And I say, oh, okay, so if I do charitable acts for somebody, I'm not really doing it for that human being. I'm actually doing it for the Lord. And they go, well, no, because the context in which the scripture was given to you had to do with these specific children or these specific people. So it's, you know what I mean? So I believe that, that things or concepts inside scripture can be applied broadly, but you have to do that seriously. And my um, evidence for that was when the Apostle Paul is claiming that he should be paid for his ministry, and he references, you do not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Do you merely think that this was meant for ox? Like, he's basically saying, like, this concept of um, don't muzzle an ox while he treads out the grain, he's saying about himself while he goes out on his mission to preach the gospel. He's saying, mm -hmm. you know, I deserve to get paid. And so if that context from that can be applied here, then I think the same can be done. And not in a way where it's like you're taking things out of context, but you're able to apply something that happened a long time ago to your life now. And that's kind of that's kind yeah. of how I take that. Well, let's let's just read this passage and let people decide for themselves. Right. So the the call mm -hmm. no man, your father uh, bit comes from Matthew 23. Uh, specifically, it's in in verse eight. Uh, but we'll just uh, we'll read. I'll just read the whole thing real quick. So then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples saying, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe that observe and do, but do not do according to their works for they say, and do not do for they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers, but all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments I believe the phylacteries, uh, real quick aside, is one of those things where they would put scripture in it. So that was mm -hmm. part of binding scriptures to their uh, themselves. They're like, kind look of how a... much scripture I have around my neck. <laughs> Exa exactly. Kind of. So kind of a callback to that Proverbs verse we were reading. It's interesting how the, the Bible's hyperlinked like that. Um, <laughs> For they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on the shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works that be they do to be seen by men. Okay, yeah. Uh, they love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ, but he who is greatest among you shall be your servant." And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So what, what this is talking about is it's saying that as someone who is a teacher, as someone who is talking about scriptures and, and, and spreading the understanding and knowledge of God, you shouldn't be calling yourself, you know, teacher. You shouldn't be calling yourself uh, father because the, the person who's truly the you know those those things is god right and yeah. so it says do not call anyone on earth your father it's not just a a that is not just a commandment for the 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 scribes and the pharisees that is a, a that's a very broad statement okay and, and so I, yeah, basically yeah. their point was because it was said about the Pharisees that that's why you can call other people father. And then I'm going to ask, um, in Protestant denominations, we've got reverend, we've got, I can't even remember all the names, but we also call our teachers pastor, 
or um yeah so like you know pastor joe pastor bob I'm like what is a pastor and is why is that okay yeah um so the the difference there uh i personally i would not want to be called reverend and i would not want to call someone else reverend uh because i don't think that we are supposed to revere uh those people um i think we're supposed to revere god and revere revere jesus but i don't think any man is a reverend uh so i personally don't like using that term though it does crop up in a lot of protestant denominations uh so i don't like that the uh what was the other thing the reverend and uh what was brother and pastor oh pastor yes 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 okay so so a pastor is a it's a farming term okay oh. so uh pastoral uh, is in reference to uh, animals that go out to pasture and so a pastor is someone who goes out and herds a flock of sheep and so when you're calling yourself a pastor you're not elevating yourself into a high uh uh office okay if you look at the the term and you go back to you know one you go back to when jesus was alive calling yourself a herdsman was not dignified okay going out and dealing with sheep was like the lowest thing you could possibly do and so calling yourself a pastor is not putting yourself up in some high and mighty office we think of it that way now because that term has now come to mean someone in charge of a church but originally it just meant someone in charge of a bunch of dirty, smelly, awful sheep <laughs> that you don't want to deal with. Yeah. And so I have much less of a problem calling someone pastor than I would calling someone reverend. I would never call someone father. Uh, the, the, the reason why a, a, a Catholic priest, specifically I know for Catholic priests, but also likely for Eastern Orthodox if they use that term as well, yeah, they do. So, th in the mass, the the priest actually becomes another Christ. Okay, and so when you're calling a Catholic priest father, I believe they're also blasphemously kind of taking on the term, you know, the terms of God the Father. They're acting as God in that situation before you, I, and so for me, that's the issue that I have. There is no other man on this planet who is my father but my dad, and I don't think I should call anyone other than that father. I just, they're not my father. The person in charge of my church is not my spiritual father. They, they have no relationship to me and my salvation. They are there. They're a great, they have a relationship to me in, in the sense that we're both brothers in Christ, but they are not over me in the sense of, any kind of uh they're not oh, they're not above me in the religion of christianity like so, positionally towards christ exactly so there, there is no distance between uh the the distance between me and christ is the same as between christ and my pastor he has no closer access to god than i do and and that's the real thing about christianity that most people don't understand uh especially coming from a catholic or an eastern orthodox uh belief system you think that there's a ton of people that are in between you and god your priest their bishop their cardinal the pope 
whoever's in charge of the Eastern Orthodox Church, they think all of those men are in between them and their salvation, and that's just the furthest thing from the truth. And so that that those are some of my issues with using the term father, and I, I just won't do it. Yeah, I refuse as well, because I feel like I feel like the verse itself is point blank. It's saying, call no one on earth father. And so when I, when I've had arguments with other Protestants, or even Catholics, and so they'll have an idea, which to me seems like an extrapolation. And so I, my whole position on it is, if that was the heart of God, he would have said it. He would have made it very clear. And so when I read verses like this, it seems very clear that what he's saying, it, how can it be taken any other way? Call no one on earth father, for you have one father that is in heaven. I mean, really, how can that be taken any other way? It sounds yeah. really literal, and it sounds, you know. So. Well, and so let's let's look at it this way. So it says in verse 8, but you do not be called rabbi. Okay, so that's very specifically talking about rabbis, right? Verse 9, it says, do not call anyone on earth your father. So, so in verse 8, that would be a specific rabbi thing, okay? But you do not be called rabbi, and then... It's telling them, which I believe is also a command to us, do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Right? Yeah. So, it's it, it, it's sad that there are people that, that believe that there is someone that is in between them and Jesus Christ. So, especially if you look at the Catholic Church, it's a huge, huge problem, all of the different people that they put between them and Jesus Christ. Uh, ultimately ending up with uh, the worship of his mother, Mary. I mean, they literally call her a mediatrix, okay? What is that Which again? Is, so, uh, it's like a fe female mediator? Yep. <laughs> it's a oh, female okay. mediator, a mediatrix. And, and so it, it's, it's sad. You know, Mary would just be absolutely horrified by the, the worship of her that, that people do. And, you know, there again, there is one mediator between God and man that is the man Christ Jesus. We, we cannot forget or lose sight of that. I'm not above anyone in their salvation. You're not above anyone in, your salva in their salvation. My pastor isn't above anybody. The Pope has no closer access to God than I do. I think he has no access to God personally because I don't believe that he is saved. But that's a completely different discussion. So... You know, I think to... we're, we're how, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, you know, you go. I was just going to say, um, because we're taught to be fishers of men, I think what it is, is those who have come into the family of God, kind of like we're on a dock, and everybody who isn't, we're trying to fish them and get them on the same dock that we are standing on. And there's no, there's no higher place to be. It's just, hey, I see you spiritually dead, and I want, I want to preach the, 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 the gospel to you so that way you go accept it, and then you're like on the dock with me, helping me fish for other men. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That's... I like that, yeah. I like it. <laughs> and like you said, there, there's no higher or better spot on the dock to be fishing from, right? Yeah. And, and Just that's... one dock. <laughs> and, and, and I like that analogy for a number of reasons, because you know, our, our focus should really be on bringing the lost into communion with with god and with with uh with christ right like that should be our number one focus we shouldn't be focusing on the other people on the dock okay right yeah like, no <laughs> like, just because one guy's got a, a higher part you know one guy's standing on the the pillar on the dock right like that doesn't give you uh that doesn't give you a better a better vantage point to fish from 
So right. I like exactly. that. That's a good that's a good analogy. <laughs> Thank you. Um but uh yeah, it's 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 sad and and you know, kind of going back to to being in Israel, you just see all of these people that are just completely, you know, uh beholden to these systems that have nothing to do with God. So it, it was funny. We uh, I didn't go through Hezekiah's tunnel, but there's a tunnel that's mentioned in the Old Testament, I believe, in the Book of Kings, um, and it's a uh, it's Hezekiah who uh, made this tunnel so that they could get water into the city in case the, in case of a siege. And so uh, we're going to go tour this thing, and and uh, Pastor Joe is talking with one of the other either Eastern Orthodox or Catholic priests that brought a group here. And he had no idea what Hezekiah's tunnel was or who Hezekiah was. He had never heard the name Hezekiah. And it was like Ooh. this priest or, or the, the Eastern oh, I Orthodox. Oh, you were talking about like, Joe. No, no, <laughs> Joe, Joe knows. So the, the priest is like, huh, what's, Hez, what's a Hezekiah? Basically was his response. And it's like, you're a priest and like responsible for all these other people's like salvation. And you become an altar priest too and all of this stuff but you don't know who Hezekiah was like, you should know the Bible, dude. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the Bible and its authority is so low on their totem mm -hmm. pole that they don't really care. They rather um, preach the things they hear coming from above, uh, going up the chain. So. Exactly. They, they have more faith in the men that are above them in their faith and the, the men that made decrees at councils they 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 put that above the scripture and so they won't know the councils either <laughs> but because those councils are there and because they explain catholic doctrine and dogma and teaching they can just use that as a substitute and go well i don't need to know the scripture because i have this council that tells me how to exist and how to live and that council yeah. informs how the mass is conducted. So as long as we're doing the mass right and following that, then I'm good. And it's it, it's just so wicked and, and wrong and and completely, you know, the opposite of, of everything that God uh, wants for for us and for our lives. You know, He wants us to have freedom. He He wants us to be able to make the choice to follow Him of our own free will and not because some other man is, is putting a gun to our head. And, and at different points, the Catholic church has literally done that. You know, they've at the point of a sword, they've, they've told people they need to convert and profess Christ. And that's just, that's just insane. It's insane that your, your belief system in these men allows for a pornocracy of popes. <laughs> have you heard, have you heard about that? No, I think, oh, well, I mean, I think I remember you mentioning it at one point during one of our personal conversations, but I don't mm. remember it too well. Yeah, so basically there was a period in like, I don't know, a thousand AD, some, somewhere around there, where uh, the popes were so horribly degenerate and wicked and evil that uh, they were having orgies in the Vatican. Like, just straight up. <laughs> like. Dang. Like, just the most evil, wicked things you could possibly imagine. And that's one of the people... Those are some of the people that are in this apostolic line of succession. Okay? Uh, it, yeah. it does... It, it, I, I could... Why would you base your entire belief system on a line of men that includes that? Right? Like, I don't need a, a horribly degenerate, pornocratic leader 
in in my line of succession to believe in Jesus Christ. I just need Jesus Christ. Yeah. So I agree. That's that that's that's ultimately the the issues with with the you know the call no man your father. Once you start calling other people father, then the next guy that comes over that comes and takes over that position, he might be horrible. And what are you going to still call him father too? And the answer the Catholics have given is yes, we're still going to call that person father. That's interesting. Wow. Because like you know the currently a lot of the more conservative Catholics they don't like the current Pope. <laughs> He's a he's a socialist. So does that mean they're out of communion with them? <laughs> the, uh, if they were to if they were to stop going and stop doing the things that they're commanded to do, yes. But just disliking oh. him doesn't doesn't make you out of communion. Interesting. You'd hope that it would cause them to uh, wake up, but unfortunately, no. We uh. By the way, we just hit two hours. <laughs> yeah, I I I'm so. loving that our conversations are able to extend and talk about really good points um and we have talked about um proverbs today and before we get going what let's um let's talk about uh first corinthians and the definition of love and then we can call it there yeah that sounds great i just wanted to let you know where we were at uh all right so i got that pulled up let me get over to that on there we go all right uh all right, you want to so, read this one yeah all right, so I think we've got um, I think we got eight verses here, and let's go ahead. All right, and so at the top here, um, in my here, let's go ahead and read from New King James. Um, NLT um, is we'll we'll have to talk about that translation at some point. It's a good it's a good translation, but it's not a word for word accuracy. And so if you're trying to study the Bible, NLT is not the juice. But if you're just trying to have a quick read-through of a rough synopsis of what things are kind of saying, then it, it definitely helps in that area. Uh, um, just real quick, uh, to kind of get your perspective real quick, as a, uh, as a new Christian and, and someone who uh, probably, you know, as a new Christian, would you say that you liked reading through the NLT to begin with, or would you not recommend yeah. that? No, absolutely. So um, I've just come to notice, so the first time I read anything was New King James, and I really mm -hmm like fell in love with the way the verses were put reading the same verses in nlt it's not phrased the same way but the gist is still there and we've come across a couple different problems one of them was me speaking to the woman at the well and she's saying um i know that the messiah is going to come and he's going to do this and he's going to do that and he goes i that speak to you am he heavily implying that he's the messiah and then the nlt it just straight up goes for the throat and it says i am the messiah with an exclamation point and so you yeah. were pointing out that that can crop up to some problems and lead to some issues there, especially if you're witnessing to like a Jewish person. You're like, here, see, he's saying right here that he is the Messiah. And so that's a problem. But the way I'd put it is basically when I have to read New King James or King James or other, even sometimes the English Standard Version, I'm not like I can read, but I, I'm not I don't have the biggest reading level. And so I, I've noticed that the way the NLT puts it is is very fluid i can read verses very easily i know ex i i understand what it's saying and if i if i'm hinging some kind of doctrine or some kind of idea on some verses that i'm seeing i'm gonna go check literally the greek or you know king james like some old things that i can find um i, I would kind of put it that nlt is just um, a paraphrase of the translations the watch together it, started again oh it did it's not playing for me that's weird um, go ahead and leave the activity. Uh, 
It's on the bottom left. Sorry. Okay, there we go. Okay, sorry about that. It's weird. So <laughs> it, it paraphrases the Bible and makes it easy to kind of gloss through and read through. And if you're if you're having a hard time with kind of the mental gymnastics that ha that kind of goes on when you're reading some of like New King James or something like that, it, it just it it slowed me down. It felt like ankle weights. And then when I started reading the New Living Translation, it felt like I was blazing through books. And I just loved that so much. And so I haven't really held any ideas that start to make me have issues because I'm reading the NLT, but I do want to let everybody know it's a paraphrase, whereas other translations might be very literal. You know what I mean? Yep. Perfect. Yeah. I appreciate you explaining that for everybody. Um, you know, I, I haven't looked into how off the NLT is. Uh, so I couldn't tell you exactly, you know, cause like you said, it, it does change some things where it says where Jesus actually said, you speak of, uh, I am he that you speak of or whatever the, the, the quote was where the NLT just says, I am the Messiah. You know, it's, it's trying to make it easier for you to understand. And I understand that, but ultimately, you know, we need, we need to see the stories as they were actually presented to us as close as, as it possible, is written. I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, you know, and, and then and of, also, yeah. sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say that every translation is going to be off. There is no way to perfectly translate any text from its original language into another one. There's always going to be uh, things that you have to compromise on. There's always going to be something that's said slightly differently. Your one word could have one or two different kind of meanings, depending, you know, in English. So, like, you're never going to get a perfect translation. And so I don't want anybody to think that there is just one perfect translation that we can, you know, that we can just never think about ever again. Cause I know that there's some people out there that are a K King James version only KJV only. And I, I don't like that. I think that the King James version has its own problems. You know, it's from a, it's from much earlier texts before we, we had the, the multitude of texts that we have today. And so there's there's issues that it has. I think that it's a, a very faithful translation. I think that you could find Jesus Christ in the gospel in the KJV. I think you can find Jesus Christ in the gospel in the NKJV, in the NLT. I think in a lot of those, you know, you're going to find Jesus Christ on those pages. And I think that's ultimately what's the most important part. Now, once you found Jesus Christ, once you're, you know, living for him and you've accepted him as, as your Lord and your Savior... You know, we should be looking for the translation that we can understand the best and that has the the clearest view of, of who Jesus Christ is, I think. Yeah, and um, uh, because it was written in a combination of Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and Greek you can't, um, that's, and that's where the manuscripts were written and stuff, unless you are fluent in that language, it's not going to be... And it's not going to be as literal. And so I've noticed with different languages, like for, I think, Japanese, they don't have a lot of words for what our American words are. And I remember watching the movie, like when I was younger, The Grudge. And in the movie explains there is no American word for the word grudge. And so, like, you'll, you'll come across that same issue from Greek to other things. And that's why it's hard to have a literal translation of a lot of things. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, and so. it's, it's also really difficult because we're not dealing with modern hebrew we're not dealing with modern greek we're not oh, dealing with ancient stuff it's all ancient so like we have no idea how these words were pronounced we mm. you know like 
we we do, we don't know a lot about the words that were written. The best that we can do is go back and look at old texts that you know have it have text in both Greek and Latin, and then kind of translate from there. So there's a lot of of things that can go wrong in our translating process, which only makes it that much more incredible that we have the the book that we have today of the Bible and how completely accurate that is. Okay. So like even the issues that we have with the NLT, we're not talking about it being more than a percent off. Okay. That one verse that we brought up, that was one verse out of, you know, a hundred verses that we could go through. And it, it says the exact same thing, maybe slightly different words, but it doesn't actually change the nature of it where that one place it kind of did. Right. So, yeah. you know, I just think it's important. Like I said, the number one thing with any translation is, is it, it needs to have the gospel in it. It can't have changed anything, uh, you to know, say something else. To that say something else. Said. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, uh, we'll, we'll just get into, uh, first Corinthians 13 here. We are using the NKJV. Uh, so the new King James, hopefully that's a little bit easier to understand than the old King James. <laughs> oh yeah. Thy, the, ye. it's so hard. <laughs> well, and, and the, the, again, the kind of a funny thing. And, and I, I love our brothers who are KJV only. I think that they're wrong about that. And they're a little silly in their, in their dogmatic, uh, beliefs there uh but the funny thing is the kjv the king james version isn't the original king james version did you know that no i didn't even know that so the original king james version was written in 1611 and it would be almost completely unreadable to a modern american english speaker just so shakespearean it's like impossible almost it's like <laughs> it's, it's not so 16... so let's just Let's read. Let's see if I can read. Oh no! I can uh, already uh, do something from the. All right, sure. In the beginning, God created the hewn and the earth. Heaven doesn't have a U, have a V. It's spelled with a U. And the earth with was out was without form. F O R M E and void. V O Y D and darkness. Darkness. D-A-R-K-E-N-N-E-S-S-E -S -S -E was Vipon, uh the face of the deep. D-E-E-P-E. -E -E. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Mental gymnastics. <laughs> and the spirit of God mood Vipon, the face of the waters. M-O-O-U-E-D is moved. Okay. <laughs> so, you, so you can imagine you can imagine, you know, you're trying to read. Like, I can pretty well translate this right because it's kind of close here but you can imagine some places in numbers or lord or knows where like and, yeah. <laughs> you know it's it's it, it's not modern english and so the kjv bible that we have today is a translation of the 1611 kjv bible so it's wow, just a funny translation of a translation and and it's just funny how dogmatic people are sticking to KJV only when that's not even the original King James version. <laughs> that wasn't oh, interesting, the, right? It had, that had to be translated. And then the new King James version just did the same thing again and kind of updated the language from the old King James version. Cause even in the, what, like 150 years that that was around, the language had changed enough that we needed to update it a little bit too. 
So yeah. l- language is constantly evolving and changing. Uh, and, and so that makes, again, that's what makes translation so difficult. You can see how much English has changed just since 1611. So can you imagine how much Greek has changed in 2000 uh-huh. years? Or how much <laughs> like Aramaic has changed? Uh, I mean, Aramaic is a completely dead language, right? Yeah. Hebrew, I mean, there are people that still know it from my understanding like but it's not not as a native speaker right my understanding is that there aren't native speakers and so we don't even have an like there's things we don't even know how how they're pronounced all that kind of stuff so bible that would be a good episode to do on uh, like bible translations maybe we'll have to figure out somebody that can come and talk to us about that someday okay so all right so we are going to be talking about love today Mm -hmm. Um, right before this episode ends and basically the way humans and society talks about love is more along the lines of like a desire to have and the moment someone makes you mad you don't really desire to have them anymore and your anger might be upon them and so basically god has a different definition of love one that applies very broadly and one that we should all subject ourselves to just because you're called to love our neighbors as ourselves. And so if we don't even understand what love is, that's a problem. And so here in 1 Corinthians 13, we, we get the definition of biblical love. And because God is love, he would know how to define it, right? And so that's yep. kind of kind of the way I would put that. And then we're going to be reading right now New King James Version, 1 Corinthians 13. Though I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but not have love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods and feed the poor to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind, or long-suffering and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will fail, whether they are tongues, they will cease, whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. And so, um, do you mind if I quickly read this in the NLT as well? So I can kind of give sure. a good example of... Yeah, that sounds so great. So the, the NLT, the, and, for, and this is kind of going to be an easier read-through of this. If I could speak all the language of earth and of angels, but did not love others, I would only be a, as a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but did not love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor, even to be sacrif- even sacrifice my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable and keeps no records of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless, but love will last forever. That's how the NLT puts it. Mm. Okay, so 
there are differences in the translation, but here we have a biblical definition of love. And so when you're told to love your neighbors as yourself, it kind of lays that out, you know, and love is like, like we just put it, you know, there's a lot of different things that is, you know, patient and kind, not boastful or proud, doesn't keep records of wrongs, demand its own way, um, things of that nature. And so true love is in my, in my kind of feeling about this is to putting your anger aside, you know, not letting your feet run towards wrath and being open and understanding of people's issues and being patient when they happen and being forgiving when they happen and, and, and things of that nature. And so Amen. whenever someone wrongs you, whenever someone calls you names, calls you anything like that, we're to show love to absolutely everybody. And so I think uh, a heart that is quick to forgive is, is very important. And if you're patient and kind and you seek understanding, that, that's, that's where the love is at. Not somebody who you said something offensive and I'm immediately mad at you. That's that. That's not loving. And so basically, um, yeah, that's my two cents on that. Ryan, did you want to touch on that? Uh, yeah. You know, I I think that this is an incredible passage. You know, a lot of people have uh the love uh that that little paragraph up on their you know their their walls and their houses to try to remind <laughs> themselves of of what love is and. You know, I'm just, I'm incredibly thankful that uh, I, I've come from a house that does a pretty good job of, of living up to that, uh, living up to that, that paragraph. And, and, you know, ultimately, if you don't have that kind of love in your life, if you don't have that sort of thing, you can have it in Jesus Christ and he can fill that void that you're missing. Right. And, and, and ultimately, like, like you were saying, even though people might wrong you, if you're truly loving them, you're going to overlook that and you're going to work through it, right? You're going to, uh, um, you know, you're not going to be quick to anger. You're, you're, you're going to forgive them as quickly as you possibly can, right? And, and I think that's, that's one of the most important things is just that we, we show love to those that are around us and that we, we treat them the way that, that Christ treats us. Because, you know, there's been so many ways that we have transgressed against God, that we've done things that, that horribly grieve him. And, and you know, there there is so much love that he has for us that he can overlook all of that and still treat us perfectly and, and, and kindly and compassionately and, and with, you know, so much grace and mercy that we don't even deserve. So, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I like your... Um... Your two cents on that, and yeah, um, did we have anything else we want to say before closing? Um, you know, just uh, if if you're struggling with that, if you're if you're struggling with people that are are uh kind of you know working against you or, or aren't loving you properly, unfortunately, not unfortunately, but uh, ultimately, the the process of of loving someone properly doesn't depend on them. Okay. And thank God it doesn't, because none of us would be loved if it was dependent on us to be to be to be uh, easy. You know, if it was on if it was on us to to be easy to love, no one ever would, right? And so, for everybody out there that's struggling with that and 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 going through some tough times with with people treating you improperly or wrongly or 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 for whatever reasons, you know, they're they're the the best thing that you can do is continue to love them the way that God's called us to 
and to respect them the way that God has called us to and, and, and to work through it. And hopefully through that process, they, they see you returning their spite, returning their hate, returning their wrongdoing with love. And then they can see the way that God is supposed to treat them and, and the way that, not, sorry, the God, that God will treat them and, and the way that God will respond, uh, is responding to them, right? Like, cause they're, they're, whatever they're doing to you, they're doing a thousand times worse to God. And despite that, God still wants them to repent, to turn away from their evil deeds so that he can save them and love them the way that, uh, you know, uh, the father in the uh, prodigal son story loves his son. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's what I got on that. And, and I, I'm really appreciative that you uh, you brought this up. I think that's an incredible passage that. I think a lot of people know it or like look into it as kind of just a, a good paragraph to know, but to to read it and to really kind of dive down and, and see what it's saying for us to do. It's it's a tough passage to live out, right? What's what's even tougher is when Jesus says to love your enemies, because this is the definition of love, so this is how you treat your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Because mm-hmm. that's what Jesus ultimately did to the Romans who were nailing him to the cross. Father, yep. forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And so, and, well, and then yeah. because of that, uh, because of, of, of Jesus's example there on the cross, what we see, I believe Stephen, and then a lot of the martyrs that are being burned at the stake by the Romans, they do the exact same thing. And, and how much more powerful of a message could there be than a Christian who is, is proclaiming Christ while being burned at the stake or hung on a cross or stoned to death, you know, as someone that is perpetrating those acts seeing that that person still loves you the person that's killing them and cares about you especially when the 10 other guys you executed that day were horrible murderers and thieves and were cussing you out and you know just hurling so much hatred towards you to then have this one random person show up and he's getting you know crucified right next to all these other people but his response to me is with love and kindness and care that that's why we're saved today where we you and me are likely a direct result of one of those roman soldiers hearing uh about christ from somebody that was dying on a cross or being burned at a stake you know so that the that it's so important that we show the love that Christ shows because it can have that big of an effect. Yeah. And, um, and they were faithful unto death, like it says in revelation, which is really important too. Yep. And, and, you know, ultimately if, if those soldiers didn't repent of their sins and turn to Christ, uh, those martyrs are in heaven underneath the altar crying out for, for God's justice. And, you know, unfortunately, for for those that deserve it some sorry we all deserve it but unfortunately for those that haven't accepted christ's sacrifice they'll have that that punishment meted out on them and it's not going to be a fun day (laughs) it's not going to be a fun eternity (laughs) for them unfortunately so yeah well all right i think um this is going to conclude our episode i hope everybody enjoyed it um my name is austin if you want to catch me um you know in the in the webcam then uh i'll be here on faithful dialogues and then my personal stuff uh, which is a christ-centered clothing line is on apostlesattic.com and then ryan what do you got for us 
Yeah, so my name is Ryan. I've been doing uh, my own personal videos, uh, trying to spread the gospel over at AIIW.org. Uh, it's called As It Is Written, and I hope you go check out my stuff over there. And uh, yeah, I'm just really happy that I got to spend some time with uh, my good friend and brother in Christ, Austin. It's been a couple weeks since we've been able to uh, get together and, and do this with my travels and different life events that have been keeping us both uh, away. So I'm glad we can kind of get back on the horse. And uh, we had a yeah. little bit uh, a little bit more to talk about today than what we have in the past. We did a whole t almost two and a half hours now, and I hope you all <laughs> enjoy it and, and uh, show up next week. Uh, yeah, I think that we're going to we're we'll try to iron out a day that we uh, do this on or release this on uh, going uh, going forward. But just things in our lives right now mean it might come on slightly different days uh, than what we've been doing. So uh, I'll try to tweet out in advance what day we'll be going live every week. Uh, but just uh, give us some grace there as we kind of figure everything out. We're doing our best. So. Yep. Yep. All, All right, right, everybody. All right. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> Have a great week, Thank everybody. You.